0: I have had an idea. I think I'm going to resign from this incredible job, which I love, and try this. So yeah, it wasn't easy, but I just felt the pull. I had this idea Mm. and I just thought I've got to give this a go or I'll regret it.
1: Hey, welcome to Ladyland, a podcast by Lady Brains, where we chat to ambitious women about what it takes to become an overnight success. Huge spoiler alert. The overnight success does not exist. We're your hosts, Caitlin,
0: Anna and Mava.
1: Now get comfy, fellow lady brains, and ride with us to Ladyland.
2: Imagine finding yourself sitting across the boardroom table negotiating the deal of your life with the world's biggest sporting brand, Nike. Well, in 2012, this was the reality for Julia Stefania, who at just 32 had invested her life savings into Star Runner, a brand that just a few years later would become the world's biggest online activewear retailer, valued at over $50 million. Impressive, right? Well, we can confirm that in person she's just as amazing as she sounds, But aside from the awards, accolades and financial success, what really blew us away was Julie's kind nature, her authenticity and her willingness to share advice, not only with us, but also with all of you. We began our chat in the star on a boardroom, surrounded by mood boards featuring the upcoming winter collection.
0: My first ever job was when I was 15 and it's the place that you can get a job when you're 15, which is McDonald's. Macca's, brilliant. Mackers. It's common thread
2: with a few people yeah, we've interviewed. Really, mm-hmm. yeah. You know
0: Definitely. what? I remember when I applied for that job and I had to do a trial, and I was just like the clumsiest, most nervous person. I was like making a soft serve cone. It was one of the things that you had to do, and I was just so slow, etc. And I can tell you what they turned me into a machine. You know what I mean? (laughs) I was this like bumbling, nervous kid, uh, 15-year-old, and I sort of worked there maybe for a couple of years. And by the end of it, I'd worked on the counters I then moved into the kitchen. I was managing the whole kitchen ordering system, so like ordering the burgers and making sure we had enough supply for the demand during peak hours. It was super stressful for like, what, a (laughs) 16-year-old? But like I learned so much. I totally learned how to hustle And I reckon it's actually a really good job for, you know, kind of teenagers looking for Mm. their first role.
1: Yeah. I think we've heard McDonald's and retail really stand out in terms of how
0: to sell. Yeah. Uh, Trying to achieve certain sales figures, just hustling. Yes. Well, that was probably one of my next jobs. So after McDonald's, so I was at school, um, I worked at Sanity Music, so mm-hmm. selling CDs. A throwback. And, yeah, the <laughs> yeah, throwback. And having to upsell, I totally remember us having to upsell those cleaning packs to clean your disc with, which did oh. anyone really ever need those? How often did you clean your disc? And, it, you know, they worked. But we had to upsell them and we also had to sell those cardboard inserts you know, at Christmas time, they're like kind of a Christmas packaging and oh, yeah. you write a yeah. message on them. Yeah. We had to upsell those and, boy, did I upsell. Like I was, <laughs> give me a task and I like like to do you it. You like a it. challenge. Yeah, I, yeah. so the thing about me is like either I'm a zero or like 110. I will either yeah. not do something or I will do it the best it can be done.
1: <laughs> That's so good. I worked in a shoe store and my upsell was the um, the inserts the shoes so the, the party feet and yeah. you know oh yeah. my gosh it just I churned out so many of those yes. so yeah it's like give me a challenge and I'll upsell
0: anything you know what it is it's a dopamine release yes you know? yeah. I, yeah. I think that whole psychology behind why we achieve things and strive to do things is really fascinating but there I go again <laughs> <laughs> so good so where to next
1: after that after retail
0: uh so I w- worked there while I was still at school and then I started a degree And the first degree that I did, because I was really, I loved maths and science at school and I was really into like reading science books growing up. So Mm -hmm. I started a science degree, but I did not know what I was going to do with it. Uh, So I then sort of looked into what else could I try and I moved into a business degree. And I loved this business degree. I ended up majoring in marketing. So towards the end of my degree, I was like, what job am I going to get? Like, you know, where is this going to land me? I need to start learning what I need to have so I can land that job. And everything that I was reading, they wanted like a year's professional experience. And I thought, how am I going to get to that as soon as I graduate? So I did the last year of my degree part-time externally and I got a job. So I was like, if I can line those up and do them at the same time, <laughs> I'll have my year's experience and yeah. my, <laughs> uh, my degree. Makes sense. Yeah. So um, I started looking for some roles and I got. I w- went to a recruitment agency and they put me forward for a few roles. I was like one at BHP, which was really cool, which I came close for. And then there was one which was at ANZ Bank. And um, it was in institutional finance. It wasn't exactly in marketing, but it was really, uh, really great role. And so I that was my first professional job. So I worked there for probably three or four years in the end, actually more. Mm. And I was assessing loans between sort of 20 million and 100 million. So yeah, it was institutional finance. So big shopping centers, um, big property developments. And it was just a really great experience and just so relevant for, I think, any business that you go mm. on to later. That was my first proper professional job.
2: Having that fundamental understanding of
0: finance and accounting and, and all of that. Mm, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. handy. It wasn't fun, but it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my, yeah, my first professional job, but obviously I didn't love it. And so um, after a few years, I started doing a bit of soul searching. I really loved and missed that marketing sort of creative side. Yeah. And then by chance, I found this website, which I loved. Um, it was based in London. And it was a streaming video on demand sort of Mm. service. So kind of like what Netflix does, but they were predominantly in the um, foreign film, art house film, cult indie. So if you think of like palace cinemas here in Sydney and Mm -hmm. in Australia, Mm. like that. So they're streaming that sort of film. And so I was just using it as a consumer. I was like, I signed up for the service. I was watching these amazing like French films from the 60s. and I really got into it. And I noticed this little, like signed down the bottom of their website. It said if you have any feedback, please email us here. So I I did. So <laughs> I emailed them and being demanding, I was like, can you do this and this and this and can you write this? And they wrote me an email and they said, We implemented a lot of your changes and they've become some of our most used features on the website. So wow. oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So they were like, Would you like a job?
1: <laughs> wow. So
0: I jumped on a call with the founder and I started working from Sydney. So I was doing it remotely and I flew to London a couple of times. It's where they were headquartered and it was the best job. And so eventually I moved to London and worked from headquarters there. And that was, yeah, that's going to be one of the most fun jobs that I had. What were you um, actually doing there? What role? What- in marketing, I headed marketing. Up the marketing division, basically. Um, so I don't know. There's probably about thirty people at that time. Wow. Um, so it's fairly small, very much like where Star Runner is now, but yeah. doing a lot. Like there was so much to do, and yeah, that was that was a really great job, but very entrepreneurial. So I learned mm. so much about startups there. Both things to try and replicate and you know kind of hone. I think there was there was so much they learned there, but also things that I wish that I had and didn't have access to in terms of, you know, freer flowing of information, etc. Which I really try and stay conscious of here and try right. and mm. do differently.
2: You referenced it before as a dream job, and then you left.
0: <laughs> I did. It was so hard to leave. Yeah, Um, Like it was a really great job because I loved the work that I was doing. I loved the team. So many fun perks. Like we'd go to the Cannes Film Festival in South Mm. France every year and, you know, it was amazing. So it was really hard to just go, I have had an idea. Mm. Um, And I did have that idea actually while I was working there. Mm. And I think I'm going to resign from this incredible job, which I love, and try this. So, yeah, it wasn't easy. But I just felt the pull. I had this idea mm. and I just thought, I've got to give this a go or I'll regret it. Mm.
2: Can you tell us about yeah. the light bulb moment?
0: Well, the light bulb moment came because when I worked at Movie, so that's the streaming mm. service that I worked for, we actually started at 10 30 in the morning and we worked late. So we finished probably around seven. And we did that because that's what the developers like to do. They love to sleep in. So we all worked <laughs> around the developers' hours. <laughs> it was actually really cool. So I started. Bikram yoga and I was it was so easy to do that every morning before work because mm. we started at such a reasonable time and so I was doing like I said either zero or a hundred tens. So I was <laughs> going I'm not gonna just do this regularly. <laughs> I'm just gonna do it every day so I got into <laughs> Bikram yoga every day before work absolutely loved it and then obviously I needed to you know kind of Buy some new activewear. And I was already that girl who like shopped a lot. And so I was the girl getting all the parcels delivered. And in a, in a startup, not a lot of the other of my peers were. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and so I was like, yeah, the crazy one. And so I loved to shop. And then I wanted to buy more activewear. And I went to all of these stores and I was working in Soho in London. So one of the most fashionable cities mm-hmm. in the world. But I could have been in New York. I could have been here in Sydney. I could have been in Paris. And I would have actually had the same experience. It was going to uh, a multi-label sportswear store, which was super mass market. And I just did not want to buy anything. It just looked cheap. It didn't look exciting. And it was very predominantly masculine. And then I would go to the standalone brands and there was some really cool product, but one, I love convenience. And two, the women's product was still kind of, you know, like upstairs and around a corner. It wasn't the pride of their stores. So I wasn't having a great experience. So, I was like, I will find something to buy online. And I jumped online. I was just looking for a brand, even. Mm. And I just honestly could not find some activewear, which was cool and exciting and different and fashionable. Mm. You know, like yeah. I was shopping like the Netta Porters and the Matches of the World and Selfridges, et cetera. And I just couldn't find anything in that same sort of elk in activewear. I didn't even think of it straight away. I was just a girl just shopping in my break, you know, mm. like I was, it didn't occur to me straight away, but I was back at Bikram Yoga truly at the end of a class in Shavasana when I was lying down probably, you know, kind of dwelling on the fact that I couldn't buy any cool activewear for that class and then literally I just had the idea I should just start an online store and it was kind of like this beautiful moment where it felt like the heavens opened, you know, it was like, something just told me in that moment this is going to work and so I just literally walked out of that class with full conviction that this is an opportunity no one has done it but it should be done and if I want to shop that sort of activewear now Mm. I felt that there were you know thousands of other women who would and it would only grow like it just made sense and so, yeah, I think probably that same week I, I would have resigned. Um, oh, wow.
2: So you weren't working on this as a side hustle no. at all. You had the idea, you resigned and you were like, I'm just going to go for it. A hundred and
0: ten percent. Oh, my God. It's <laughs> <Yay. laughs> <laughs> crazy. Another one. Yeah. <laughs> Another one that just backs yourself. If, I love you're going to do it, you know, yeah. just do it. Um, and so, yeah, we I, and it was obviously there was a lot to learn, a lot mm. that I had to do. I didn't think that. My job that I, I was in, the startup job, we were already giving, you know, 110% yeah. of that. Like I was working around the clock and so I didn't have any spare time as it was, but I certainly couldn't continue to do what Not I was right. doing yeah. um, to the same standard if I was going to mm-hmm. have a side hustle. For those that do have a nine-to-five and can manage it, it's awesome. But, yeah, I just – I knew I was going to make this work. Like there was mm-hmm. no let's see if it works. It's like just do what it takes to make it yeah, work.
1: Absolutely. So what was like some of the first things that you did? Because I imagine that's quite daunting, quitting your job, going, okay, cool. I know this idea long-term is going to work out, but how do I get this off the
0: ground tomorrow, today even? (laughs) It is sort of daunting, but it was mostly exciting. Like Mm. you are blinded by your optimism Mm. and you just think it'll work out. And I actually am, you know, largely an optimist and, and just think that way anyway. So I was so excited by it that just adrenaline carried me through every single day. And I think I probably lived on adrenaline for the first few years, which I don't (laughs) recommend. (laughs) But it literally helped me uh, get done what needed to get done with very few resources in the beginning. So the first thing I needed to do was I spoke to my sister, told her about the idea. Then we started to go, okay, what would we call it? So we looked up domain names and registered a domain name. And we actually found about five and we, we sort of called some of our friends and said, what are these, do you like the best? And this one had the best rate of, of people liking it, which was good because it was also my favourite. <laughs> so we went with Style Runner. It was more expensive, but we kind of backed ourselves on that. And then just, okay, we need to build a website. So it was just like kind of starting with step. what we knew we mm-hmm. had to do and then just working the rest out later, you know. So the next thing is like how do we build a website? The next thing is how do we find brands? And we put together a pitch document and then we just Googled brands and like they weren't – what we had to do in the early days was find brands that were – they had in their range, there was like a lot of hit and miss. Mm. Um, And so we essentially were curating the best products from, you know, brands that had some really exciting stuff. Mm. Uh, But it was about, you know, curating that and just being really kind of having a consistent offering. And so that's what we did. We scoured the globe for these brands and trawled for those kind of, you know, it was like treasure hunting for these beautiful pieces which we thought was super exciting but you would never see them in a traditional sportswear store. They just would never find that distribution. And we pitched them and the pitch was that we were essentially like a net a for activewear. So yeah. beautiful premium online experience. Everything came in a box. It came tissue-wrapped. We even did handwritten notes to begin with. So a beautiful premium experience and honestly, they all just immediately loved the idea. Like they were like, hang on, why hasn't anyone done this already? Um, And so it wasn't too hard getting on those first emerging brands. Um, They were all incredibly supportive. It was then a big leap and like a lot of hustle before we got our big brands on, um, which was the next big test. But um, we obviously did that and that was really exciting too. I'm just curious, like how, having never worked in
2: e-com or retail or fashion, how did you know how to negotiate margins and all of that with brands, like did you have any idea or were you just going on the fly?
0: No idea. (laughs) (laughs) So I reached out to some brands and I just said, um, you know, here's the proposition. So I had a little presentation on what the site would look like, et cetera. We had some mock-ups and I said I'm really interested in carrying your brand and then I waited for them to kind of tell me more basically. So they're like, Oh, cool. So do you want a lookbook and a line sheet? And I was like, yes, that's what I need next. Um, and I had never heard of line sheet. Like, what is that? So, um, I just waited for them to, you know, kind of, um, I was just listening for all of the clues I didn't actually negotiate much on the margin at all. To begin with, I was just grateful to mm. be able to get the right brands and the right product onto the website and prove out my concept And then obviously if I could do that and could bring in the sales, then I could, you know, kind of go back and negotiate those margins. Similarly, I went to as many conferences as I could. I was like in the front row with like my notepad writing down (laughs) every single thing that I had never heard of and Googling that later. And so I just remember being probably two and a half, three years in when I heard someone mentioned for the first time an OTB, which is an open to buy. And she was talking about how important that is to manage your, merchandising and, and how to buy the right level of inventory and so I was like make note of that and look that up and so I was just doing it with more and more information along the way and, and sort of just getting it started and improving and iterating as time went on. The positive of that however is that I guess kind of what Star Runner did was really disrupt the traditional mm. you know kind of retail experience and so if we had come in and Wanted to buy all of these small emerging brands without track records and wanted to use traditional like buying metrics, we might not have been able to make them stack up. Like mm, we mm. had to do it from this totally ground up way mm. and, and try them and test them. And we always did everything lean. So if you're not going to have those tools to be able to, you know, measure exactly how much you should have and how quickly it should turn, et cetera then what you do need to do is go lean or if you can, you know, do things on consignment and have mm, like yep. sale or return agreements, et cetera. So do things as lean as you can, get data on how quickly they're going to sell and then you can kind of forecast the levels of inventory that you need. So that lean startup approach shouldn't be underestimated if you don't have the tools to be able to, you know, kind of forecast everything
1: accurately. Mm, yeah, absolutely.
2: Do you think naivety kind of played in your favour in the beginning? Totally. Yeah.
0: It's like if, if I knew what – I know now, yeah. <laughs> you probably wouldn't start. You know, yeah. it's kind of like looking up at Mount Everest. Yeah. I need to work out for that or, you know, like train for that. Like you just wouldn't be ready. But that naivety makes it like all you see is base camp and you're like, that's achievable. <laughs> and then you get to base camp <laughs> and you're like,
1: oh. all right, next step.
0: <laughs> and it's still it's still like that. I'm still kind of looking every time we, you know, kind of achieve a new milestone, it's like looking up the next big challenge, Um, you know, growing and scaling a business Mm -hmm. is not easy, but you just kind of have to take it one step at a time. And if you look too far out, um, you know, you kind of get overwhelmed. So,
1: Mm. yeah. Timing really is impeccable because, I mean, you said when you started you struggled to find these brands that you, you know, the clothing that you were looking for. And then when you started curating, the whole um, idea of, activewear being a fashion statement was kind of growing alongside you as you were growing. Do you think that you had an influence on that and they had
0: a bit of an influence on your growth? I would like to think. <laughs> an
1: influence on it. I
0: think you know one of the things that we did too when we first bought that product, we shot everything ourselves, so mm. the photography on our e-commerce website. Um, we shot everything from day 1. And so what we did is we put like that extra love into how we styled it and showed it back. So We even took some simple things like maybe it would be a, you know, kind of pair of black tights and a crop top, but we kind of, you know, laid it under, you know, maybe a colourful bomber or something or other. And and so we took the products that were already in the market and showed them in a way that could be really Mm. cool and fashion forward and stylish. And so I think that does have an influence. People start to see things in new light and – brands would say to us like how excited and impressed they were with how we made the product look. And I think that that definitely, you know, kind of created a feedback loop of Mm -hmm. let's create even more exciting product. So I'd like to think we had a little bit of a part in it, but I'm sure that this segment was actually, you know, underserved for decades Mm. And I think maybe all it took was a couple of hints of, hang on, women want this to be more stylish. Um, and I think the brands across the board just kind of realised, hang on, we need to do this um, with a lot more love and care. And that was kind of bound to happen eventually. So I'll take a little bit of credit, but only a little. Take it. Take, <laughs> take it, it. Just take, take it. the credit. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Um, I'm curious. So
2: I think I've heard you speak or I've read someone before that from idea to launch was something
0: crazy like three months or yeah it was three yeah. or four months I can't remember yeah. exactly but yeah we wanted to launch in time for summer mm. so that was um we launched on October 15 so we that's kind of our official birth date um now mm-hmm. we launched the website and we had the idea um in winter so towards the end of winter so that was like a sprint we like just thought summer was a good time to launch something we weren't sure if we we're going to do events and things like that but it's just can feel that energy in the air and obviously leading into new year's resolutions etc that's Mm. january Mm -hmm. so we set october as our um guideline so in australia Mm -hmm. that summer um and yeah we just worked around the clock crazy hours we had there's a table that's still in the next room over there and those white chairs that we can see from Mm. our boardroom here they were literally our first like table and chairs OG.
1: That, that, OG. That's, that's, that's the OG. office over there
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's OG the yeah. Um, and so we had that and we had my sofa which we moved into the office and we only got an office because I didn't think we had enough space for the very little stock that we did commit to mm. and and to be able to do that in our home and we had one employee to start and myself and my sister and so I thought mm, we'd be pretty cramped and so we got a tiny little office that was our furniture. Um, and we'd work crazy hours, definitely away past midnight. And um, if I needed a nap, I'd literally hit the sofa for half an hour and be back up at it. And then we'd be back in the office by six, 6.30. So wow. I don't know, I think we were getting four or five hours sleep almost every night for those three months at least, but oh. probably for the next year or two, we were working like machines crazy hours <laughs> crazy yeah there was so much to do yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah like
2: developing the branding building the website getting the brand.
0: doing all the styling doing the yeah. photo shoots yeah. writing the copy doing, doing the orders yeah getting the orders you- out to customers packing that we did that all with three people
1: <laughs> wow and how did you fund the business in the early stages and and because obviously you have to buy stock you know a few seasons ahead so how did you maintain that cash flow
0: yeah First, we did invest in the business, so we probably thought initially that we'd be investing tens of thousands, mm-hmm. but we ended up investing like several times what we initially thought, so we're quite lucky that we had that ability to fund the business to begin with. Once the business got up and running, the sales were, you know, pretty exciting, you know, straight away. Mm. so that definitely helped, but we still had to continue to invest for the first few years ourselves, so we funded that business, yeah, probably for the first three years, it was really exciting even from the first year though that we had people knocking in our door and interested to invest and we met with some incredible brands you know globally who um have shown a lot of interest but yeah we had to just you know kind of work that out as well as everything else so we've talked mm-hmm. about all the things we had to do but we had to stay on top of you know cash flows as well and you know forecasts and when do you hire that next employee etc i mean that's such a big part of it cash flow is so critical for um a startup business And for anyone out there listening, you always overestimate and over-forecast your sales and (laughs) under-forecast your expenses. So try and take that into account and, you know, do it the other way around. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Add a buffer. Yeah, absolutely. And then some. Mm. We had a buffer and that still wasn't enough. Like Mm. it just you don't realise how many things will come out of the woodworks and, you know, Mm. little things legal or X, Y, Z come up and you didn't, you know, anticipate them. So lots of expenses in those first few years. But we saw the business was growing so quickly that we were able to make that decision about investing more with all of that data. So Mm. once you know you have a concept that works, you can make a decision, I think, to invest more and grow it more quickly, buy more inventory, et cetera. I think it would be a lot tougher when, if you launch a new concept and you don't see those sales, how long do you continue to invest in that? Um, But so we're quite fortunate that straight away from the day we launched we had sales uh, i think i've said i can only remember like one or two days where we didn't have a single sale coming <laughs> wow. and i was like what you know is this going to not work and didn't get any sleep that night um but honestly every day we were seeing sales come in and they were growing and we were growing like 30 to 50 percent month on month some months 500 percent year on year type thing it was really extraordinary and and so we were quite happily investing in growing the business
2: what fueled that growth, especially in the early stages? I mean, how did you even get the word out there? What was your launch plan when you when you started the business?
0: Um, the launch plan was probably hope. <laughs> hope?
1: Gosh. Um, love it. <laughs> it's that simple, folks.
0: <laughs> well, we were, we were just lucky. Yeah. So they do say um, hope is not a plan. Is that they're saying? There's a quote around yeah. that, uh, which I like now I Take you know very seriously because um, we were just so fortunate that we launched a business that consumers wanted and mm-hmm. at, at a time when there was very little competition. But we really were so lucky that social media at that time was just growing so virally. So a lot of brands were slow to get onto social media, especially things like Instagram. So Starina was able to get onto Instagram early. And, you know, grow huge followings while major other Australian, even global retailers were not on, Mm. um, you know, Instagram for years. And so we were kind of out there, you know, gaining a lead while a lot of other competitors and sort of retailers were kind of asleep. So. Um, social media was huge for us in those early years and helped us grow with very little marketing budget. I think for the first three years, we barely spent anything on marketing at all. It's just all social media, Facebook, Instagram, and um, growing an email database. Mm.
1: What would you say to someone that's trying to get into the industry today that, you know, may not be as lucky as you were?
0: Yeah, it's true. There's a lot more competition. Um, It's a lot more saturated. And also the platforms are monetizing those social media, um, you know, brands like Instagram and Facebook. So what I would say is that to launch now you just simply need to have those marketing budgets in the first few years. Mm. Um, you can still grow, get some organic growth through word of mouth and through social media, you know, kind of discovery, but a lot less than we were able to and I saw other brands, you know, kind of take advantage of in those first few years. So um, it's just it's possible especially if you have an incredible brand, but it's just going to take more resources. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one thing that I still see work really well is brands using their product to seed to influencers. If you've got a great product that people want to use and are happy to kind of come on board with, and that's really important about your brand too, customers don't just care about the product, it's which brands they're aligning with. So creating Mm -hmm. a brand that is, you know, kind of, premium or, you know, really relevant to a certain demographics So whether it's in wellness or beauty, um, if you can nail that brand, um, I think a lot of influencers want to be attached mm, to yeah. cool brands, especially up-and-coming ones, and that still works really well. And using your own product has a certain recommended retail price on it but mm. a much lower wholesale or manufacturing price to you. So the currency seems, you know, it goes a lot further. You might be giving mm. them a $200 product and they see that it's $200 value, but it only costs you twenty dollars to make. Yeah. So um, it's a really kind of clever way to make that go far.
2: And how important is influencer marketing to you at Style Runner now?
0: I think it's still really important. Mm. I think what it does is provides social proof. Yeah. Mm. So if other people are willing to, you know, say, "Hey, I got this at Style Runner," or "I absolutely love this mm. new brand of tights," that is going to give people you know, the confidence to to also come on board. People are looking for that. They're looking mm. for signals from the community to say, hey, is this is this a cool brand or is this, you know, a trusted retailer? Um, so having people that are willing to endorse you is fantastic. Um, we've never paid an influencer to post uh, as, you know, having purchased something or, you know, mm. received something from Style Runner, but we do seed products. So we're a firm believer that great product and a great brand is all it takes if someone you know really wants to support you. I'm um, not to say that paying influencers out there doesn't work or shouldn't be a strategy for somebody else. I think it can be a great way to grow. Um, but I think if you've got really great product, I think that's the first thing to focus on. When mm. you have great product or a solution or a service that people really value and need, they then you'll find influencers who'll be really proud to talk about it and happy to talk about it.
1: Mm. And where else does, you know, your marketing spend go? What are, what are you doing at the moment? Um,
0: product, product, product. So I think mm. it always comes down to <clears throat> our curation. If we mm. have the best range of active wear and sneakers, consumers will love it and want to, you know, come to us and want to talk about what they bought with us. So um, and that word of mouth, et cetera, is so important. So we spend most of our efforts in making sure that our offering is just world-class We do spend money on, um, paid advertising. Mm -hmm. So Google AdWords, which is really boring, but it works. Mm -hmm. Um, I love doing banners because we've got, we have such a visual brand. Like we spend so much time and effort on our styling and our campaigns. It really makes sense for us to be showing those via, you know, kind of digital banners and things like that around the site, around the web. And, what else do we do? We do PR. So we do events every now and then. We did some incredible events last year. We did some workouts with Kirsty Godzo. um We did this amazing dance class on International Women's Day last year. It was two hundred women packed into a room. We sold tickets to it. Like it was a so you know, cool. that's yeah. so
1: fun. Yeah, it
0: was it was amazing. It was like the best dance party year, but <laughs> so fun. And so, we, yeah, we do events and things where we can connect with our community as well. Mm. It's like one of the things we try and solve for is like we're an online business. How do we actually connect with our community? Community is so important to us. So um, we're planning to do more of those this year as well. I think that's definitely a key thing for us as well.
1: Yeah, cool. Watch this space. Yeah, Yeah. And that helps you build a community and have that direct contact with them when you're out there yeah well, you know running events
0: we have this amazing community on um instagram for example we've, you know got six hundred thousand followers we've got all of these incredible women that follow us um when we do put these events together i mean some of our events last year sold out in like an hour or two so it's like amazing. we have this community we need to do more to be able to allow them to come together you know it's just about organizing it and they they want to connect with other women mm. on the nights absolutely amazing So I have a question to change tact a little Mm. bit.
2: Um, So you now have two private label brands at Star Runner. Um, I'm really curious to understand what the decision behind investing in developing your own brands was. Was it something that you foresaw as a big growth opportunity or was there a a gap um, that you wanted to fill with your own products? I'm really curious to understand the thinking behind that.
0: Yeah, I think it comes from two two different places. On one hand, private labels, you you manufacture them, so you have higher margins. Mm -hmm. There's obviously a lot of risk and other costs to growing brand new brands, but it's something that I think retailers need to do. So if you look at most retailers nowadays, they have some form of private labels as a percentage of their business, and it just helps the overall business's health to have higher margins in some Mm -hmm. areas. We definitely see ourselves as a house of brands. So that is always going to be a small part of our business. So when I look at other case, I think of case studies, like what are are other businesses doing and and what sort of mix do they have? So if I were to look at, um, you know, like urban outfitters or even other industries like Sephora, et cetera, a lot of those sort of retailers have private label and might make up to say 20, 30% of their brands. But the majority of the rest of the business is these, you know, valued, trusted brands that have been around for decades and decades. So that's where I kind of see us getting it to. And the other driving force in creating those private labels and probably the most exciting part of it is that, you know, I started this business because I wanted to find those items, which I thought were exciting and cool. And I couldn't find in the market. So whilst it's healthy for us as a business to have private labels, it actually was first came about when I was still frustrated that we're buying from all of these brands and I wanted certain colors or I wanted, you know, I felt like they were all doing very similar things. And for us at Style Runner, we actually want to be the place you can find that slightly unusual or more fashion forward or more daring um, or bold option. And so we weren't finding that in the market enough. And so I thought, well, we'll we'll do that ourselves. So an example would be, uh, you know, when Kim Kardashian was wearing bike shorts last year. <laughs> the bike shorts. <laughs> the bike shorts. <laughs> the bike shorts. And, and all of a sudden I was like, yes, I want to wear bike shorts, you know, and where could you get them? There were so few places that genuinely yeah. had a cool bike short. And mm. literally we had it, our private label up and running by then. I was like, we need a bike short. We need it in like four weeks. Um, get to and work. it needs to be great. <laughs> and so we made that and we made like a lot of them and they just sold out. I, I can't remember now, but like, I don't know, in a week or something or other, maybe three days. And we had a huge wait list. And so that was proof that we were creating product that consumers wanted and was hard to get. And it was like, let's do more of that. So we actually did a lot more bike shorts and we even did a collab with Vogue last year, we did this really cool Vogue bike short, which was amazing in the highlight of last year, I think, um, such an amazing brand to be working with, but that's just one example. We obviously do that across all the different categories. So if it's a particular trend, if it's a particular color, you know we want to jump on it quickly if our other brands aren't doing it but really it's it's about solving for the trends that we're seeing in the market sort of in fashion
2: mm-hmm. um
0: and how can they trickle down to sportswear really quickly so certain colorways etc um and we we are able to do that um fairly quickly especially when you compare to the, a lot of the larger brands have got you know their lead times are you know more like 18 months to mm. 2 years which is fair enough. They're such huge beasts with massive volumes. But if we can supply our consumer with that, uh, she can kind of get that speed to market on certain trends. And then obviously the rest of our business is, you know, accompanying that with, you know, maybe the latest and greatest Nike sneaker release Mm. or, you know, kind of pair of Adidas slides, et cetera. And, you know, being able to shop the convenience of all of that under one roof.
2: And do you have a trend forecaster or somebody within the business whose responsibility it is for identifying what that future trend is going to be and how you can capitalize on that? Yeah, our teams
0: actually do that together. So mm-hmm. we've got a um, design and production team, which mm-hmm. is our private label um, team. And then we also have our team of buyers. So they are individually, those departments are always looking for the next trends. So they pull together um, their trend reports. And then we share that with the whole business. So we'll share a report on the upcoming trends for the season and they will put it into sort of slideshows for us, show us what's on the catwalks, show us the sort of brands that are having that sort of product and when they'll be coming to market. And then the private label team will do a similar sort of thing. These are sort of trends that we're going to bring to market. And so we share that internally quite a bit. And one of the things that we want to do more of this year is actually share that externally. You know, we have all say. This, yeah. yeah, we have all of this great data on, you know, the trends and the colours and the shapes. But you'll see that more and more this year at Style Runner.
2: What's been one of the toughest things for you during the period of rapid growth that you've had?
0: What's been a challenge? Oh, my gosh, where could I start? So many. <laughs> so many. It's like um, I think I once answered that question in like it's – just that it's always the next you know kind of fire to put out there is so much that Mm. you need to do but I probably would say the biggest challenge is in an established business and especially when it's not growing so fast you have a lot of work to do right so every department has got a lot of it's a huge workload to do their buying or you know come up with the marketing plans etc so you've got a lot of workload already at a startup especially one that is growing pretty quickly you're doing that and on top of that, you're having to build a brand new organization. So what are the processes? Like building all of those documents, creating the intranet so people can find all that information. So it's really organizing and building an efficient organization at the same time as just getting your, Doing and, it. your mm-hmm. business-as-usual work yeah. done and consciously also investing in and creating a culture Because if you just did the work that needed to get done without paying attention to that, everyone would be incredibly disorganized and you're probably going to descend into chaos and toxicity. (laughs) So it's like triple the workload. Mm -hmm. It's like getting your work done, doing it in a positive way and encouraging everyone to stay in that Mm -hmm. space and really kind of um, create that, that positive culture that you want. And then three, like organize it all at the same time so that, you know, the next people to join, et cetera, know how everything's structured. And I'm not saying that we've got that perfect by any means, but trying to do all of that at once, it's a huge task.
2: Yeah, definitely. Do you think making some key strategic hires at particular times sort of helped in that respect, you know?
0: Definitely. And I I wish I had the ability to do more of that earlier. Um, Mm. We're a business that because we have been sort of grassroots and, you know, very lean, um, we've always, like those strategic hires make such a huge improvement, um, but we've always brought them on incrementally as we've grown, um, you know, kind of envy, those businesses that you know go out and just raise a you know 50 million dollar check and kind of build everything <laughs> top down exactly as you'd want it and then you can just get all of that done and delegate it to someone um but there are pros and cons to both of those approaches to a business and we have learned a lot from having to be lean and disciplined um so yes those strategic hires are invaluable and and so grateful to you know continue to grow the team over time Looking forward to a few more hires (laughs) (laughs) in the future. (laughs)
1: Yeah, And how important is it for you to hire for cultural fit? And how do you maintain a really positive uh, work environment?
0: It's so important. So whenever I'm recruiting, I talk about culture a lot. Um, I try to set that expectation straight away in the first interview that I have with them. When they come on board, I expect two things from them. One, performance. So you obviously have a job to do and you'll have, you know, kind of clear expectations on on what you need to deliver. Um, but two, and potentially even more importantly, it is contributing to our culture positively. I have just learned over time and you see things sort of slip and because you want to believe in the best in everyone and you think things will sort mm-hmm. themselves out, I haven't done anything about them and then they fester. Mm. And I've sort of seen that firsthand and it can become toxic. So now I simply don't allow it. and I tell people that upfront, like if you're going to come on board and do that, I will pull you up. It's not okay. And if you are you know kind of failing at either one of those, performance or culture, you'll be performance managed. You need to be delivering on both of those here. So as soon as I see someone that is delivering, you know kind of just having a potentially negative effect on on culture, I pull them in. It's a pretty, you know, it's like a coaching approach. It's not like, you know, you're doing X, Y, Z. It's like, hey, have you noticed how, you know, this thing happened and and that had an impact? And I try to get them to understand first and foremost the impact they're having and give them the benefit of the doubt that, you know, they just need a bit of coaching. But you have to start that and see that they are willing to change and they're aware, they're self-aware and that they're totally on board with, oh, you're so right, I could have handled that differently. And if that is the case, nine times out of ten, you'll see that person improve and be an amazing part of a positive culture. Mm -hmm. But if they're either not able to own up to that or unwilling to change, then it needs to be, you know, kind of performance-managed ongoing conversations and it's, it's not the right fit for you. So, so important. I think that a startup is so incredibly tough. There is so much to do. The least we can do is create a great team environment and encourage each other. It's kind of like if we go back to that sort of climbing Mount Everest metaphor, it's like we're already doing something incredibly difficult. Let's do it with like positivity and a team that we enjoy kind of being around. Why make it any harder? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's really, really important here at Sarana.
1: Good on you for calling that out because I think it is easy to sweep it under the rug or not, um, you know, pull someone up because obviously that can often be a tough conversation to have. So I think, you know, I think it's great that you're setting that precedence and, you know, obviously that's, you know, flowing through to the organization in a positive
0: way. It wasn't always easy. So Mm. I definitely tried to avoid it to begin with. I I haven't actually had a lot of management experience before I came here. I was always kind of in my own role and, you know, kind of pretty autonomous. So I never had to deal with that. So for the first few years, I probably did avoid it, but then I saw the consequences of that. Mm. And so it took actually a long while to just get comfortable with having those conversations. But once you do it often enough, it just feels quite natural to be able to do it anytime you need to do it. And as long as I think you do it respectfully, and as long as you do it from a place where that person knows that you're doing it for in their best interest too, but also for the entire team's interest mm-hmm. i think that it's pretty hard for those conversations to go wrong even if they get tougher if that person's not evolving you know it's coming from a good place for the organization so yeah it took practice to mm-hmm. to be able to have those conversations but um i think it's something that yeah you need to do in a business
2: what's been your biggest pinch me moment to date
0: there have been so many it's been a really mm-hmm. incredible journey um, i still think that one of the times that you know We'll never forget, we we'll be, you know, going to Nike's headquarters, um, meeting with their executive team in, you know, this huge boardroom and an entire table full of senior Nike ex- executives at the head of all of their categories. Uh Went there with my twin sister. It's fairly early in our piece, probably in our second or third year of business. And we had pulled together this, you know, huge presentation and they were just so impressed and, and gave us mm-hmm. such, like, feedback on uh, you know how well they thought we were selling women's activewear and they said that we think you're doing it better than anyone in the world yeah. and that was like wow definitely, Pinch me, yeah <laughs> um so yeah I just never had dreamt that, that sort of thing would happen mm-hmm. um and yeah it's still it's still a yeah a moment that I treasure it's pretty cool super cool
1: and all the awards that are seen yeah, behind sitting. you, I, we can see them. <laughs>
0: yeah, very grateful for those. Yeah. What makes you happy? Water, like the beach, the ocean, mm. swimming, happy.
1: Who inspires you?
0: I think business women inspire me, especially working mums. I don't have children, but I know how difficult it is. And just to see what some incredible women have achieved. I mean, people like Roxy Chasenko, who I know is a machine, but mm. I just love seeing them set an example that you can be a working mother and continue to you know, dedicate yourself to something and be incredibly successful. So I love seeing, you know, mm. working women, particularly working mums.
2: And what's next for you and for the business?
0: More of, <laughs> more of what we've been doing for the last six years, really focusing on curating the world's best activewear and, um, and sneakers, a big part of that will hopefully be our private labels continuing to grow. And we definitely, as I said, want to share more around styling and trends and Mm. all of that incredible, you know, kind of data and research that we do internally. We want to share that more with our community. So, um, having deeper, richer conversations with our community, I think is next. And for you and for me, oh, going on a holiday. Oh yeah. (laughs) Where are you going? (laughs) Week after next I'm off to Singapore and then April I'm going to Vietnam and Dubai and maybe, I think, the Maldives.
2: Oh, heaven. I think I deserve that. Yeah,
0: (laughs) absolutely.
1: Take us with you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so, so much. It's been amazing. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast, follow us on Instagram, lady.brains. And head over to ladybrains.com.au to find out more about our events and other cool things that are happening.